Hello, I'm Brittany Wilson. I'm Nia Wasink, and you're listening to The The Nonprofit Nonprofit Reframe. Reframe. Together, Nia and I have over 30 years of nonprofit experience. We've worked the program side, the business side, and everything in between. We are reframing the nonprofit experience by challenging the status quo, because we know that nonprofits and their staff are undervalued, under-resourced, and unrelenting. Welcome back to the Nonprofit Reframe. Happy Monday, folks. Uh, We are back to recording on a Tuesday just to mess with us. So this is being (laughs) recorded February 16 and released next Monday. Wow. So we are already almost through February by the time this airs. This will be our last February episode to air. Which is why we would be remiss if we did not do an episode honoring Black History Month. Right. Which is exactly what we're going to do today. But before we get started on that, I really want to hear how Nia's Valentine's weekend went. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, it was romantic to the bitter end. Um, (laughs) In the bitter cold. Exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. (laughs) As most of the country is experiencing right now, it's uh, fucking cold here. So really cold. Really fucking cold. Um, and we decided this would be a great weekend to um, both pick up a bunch of furniture and then move it into my brother's new apartment in Denver. Oh, moving in negative um, two degree weather. That always sounds fun. It was so fun. Um, I wore two pair of pants. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not have enough gloves, and so my fingers, I really thought I was going to lose one at one point. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering if you had those little hand warmers. That would have been great as well. Um, and then my brother moved into this older apartment complex in Denver, and so the like nothing is ADA compliant anymore. Right. We almost did not fit the love seat into the door. My bro- or my husband had to take it off its hinges. It was such an ordeal. And the whole time, just like being so miserable and uncomfortable. But hey, my brother now is mostly moved in. He's got something to sit on. Aw, you're such a great sister. I'm picturing um, that moment in Friends <laughs> with the pivot. Yes. <laughs> I have a photo of them holding the love seat on this landing, unsure of how they're going to make the turn. And I'm standing at the bottom with the pillows yelling pivot. Being so helpful. (laughs) We had one of those once where it's like when we finally got it in, I'm like, I don't know if we're ever going to be able to get it out of this room. That Well, the funny thing is we actually got him a larger one and then realized we didn't actually have like the truck to bring it down. Thank Mm. God it never would have fit. We wouldn't have even gotten it up the stairs, much less through the door into his apartment. Oh, moving sucks. It does. We told him we're not going to help him again for at least another two years. So <laughs> renew that lease. <laughs> um. Well, I feel some of your pain. We had a similar weekend. Um. Well, first of all, I love living in Colorado. It's beautiful here. It's gorgeous most of the time. But there is always, without a doubt, unfailingly, one time per year where I scream at my husband and say, why the fuck do we live in Colorado? And it always happens in the month of February. So it was this weekend. Great. It was this weekend when 
it's so unbelievably cold and we have a boiler with radiant heat that I'm guessing just decided it couldn't keep up with the frigid cold temperatures. So our house was at a balmy 52 degrees most of the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) And then while we were not moving to um, another house per se, my daughters moved into their own bedrooms. What a big upgrade, big step up. So what is so much fun, what's... What's more fun than putting together Ikea furniture is having to undo it just so that you can move it 20 feet to redo it because it won't fit through the doorway uh-huh. assembled. Um, so we had some of that joy last night and I told them, similar to what you told your brother, that this is it. These are the rooms that you are staying in until you leave the house and any other changes you must do yourself. <laughs> I mean, I think that's reasonable, really. <laughs> it is so painful working with that freaking Allen key, trying to trying to undo all the different things. And then we it was a bed. And of course, we get it back together and we have leftover parts. <laughs> We're like, well, she's like, I don't know, 60 pounds. We're like putting our weight on it. We're like, I think it'll hold her. I think we're fine. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're good. That's amazing. So we shall see, but uh, they are over the moon with their new bedrooms. So it sounds like a similarly romantic weekend. Yes, exactly. Just (laughs) filled with all the things romance. Perfect. I went I went and picked up um, a new supply of Girl Scout cookies on Sunday from one of the girls' troop leaders. And I'm like, so what are you up to today? You've just busy doing a lot of romantic things all day? He's <laughs> like, no, no. Here, here's your cookies. No. <laughs> yeah, my dad called Sunday night and he was like, I know it's Valentine's Day, so this will be really quick. And I was like, dad... We're not doing anything. And he was like, well, but it's it's Valentine's Day. And I was like, we have been together for since before billionaires existed. <laughs> we have lost the importance of this day. Um, and instead, we're going to get a pizza and go to bed early. <laughs> I know. Well, we actually had plans. But what do you do? I mean, it was going to be cute in like this little tent at a restaurant where you're by yourselves and there's a heater. But if my boiler can't keep up, how's a little space heater going to keep up with negative two degree weather? I even thought I had one of these like external um, charging packs (laughs) that I could plug my electric blanket into. And I was like, maybe I should just take my electric blanket. Now I have fully turned into my mom. Like that would be like assimilation is complete if I did that. Um, And I finally, I was like, I can't do it. So we bailed. We canceled. Do it another time. Eh, That's all right. I know. We did. We didn't actually have pizza. I want to be clear because uh, we have some. You ordered. No. uh, We had some amazing friends who made us homemade pasta. Like 
rolled what? the noodles themselves, made the sauce. It was incredible. And then we went to King Supers at 8 o'clock at night because we knew it would be dead. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. That's some real adulting right there. Yeah. We... we Put the romance aside for the pragmatic trip to the grocery store. <laughs> oh, well. Well, we hope all of you had a great Valentine's Day. And um, till next year, maybe it'll be a little bit warmer. <laughs> I, I do want to say, not to bring this down, but I couldn't help but think as we were Luckily, we didn't have our heater fail or anything. We were cozy at home. And I couldn't help but think about the number of people who aren't. I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, like, this, this is this is deadly cold. This is the kind of thing where uh, the lack of shelter beds becomes really apparent because yeah. we can't house people and keep them safe. I know. And I used to work um... – for an organization that you know dealt with those experiencing homelessness and so we were obviously hyper aware of all of that and um i brought that up with my kids this weekend yeah we talked a lot about it well one of our local municipalities so kindly extended their limit on shelter nights because of the cold um because yeah that's where we are in humanity you are limited to how many nights you can safely stay in a shelter in this city. Yeah. Awesome. On that note. <laughs> so with that, <laughs> let's just move right on in. So it's Black History Month. And yes. we spent a lot of time, Brittany and I, kind of trying to think about how to how to really give time and space to a discussion about Black History Month but to do it in a way that's first off appropriate as white women um, and that that really celebrates it. Um, I, I can't remember who said this, and I wish I had, but they said, since Black History Month gets one month a year, why not we focus on black excellence instead of black trauma? Yeah. The trauma is the stuff we should have learned in school, and we didn't. So fuck the education system and let's fix that. But let's spend Black History Month celebrating real black excellence. And so that's what we thought we would do. Um, and of course, since we talk nonprofits, let's talk about black philanthropy because it's pretty fucking amazing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, also, fun fact, uh, as I was doing research for this, I discovered Black History Month was actually born out of a nonprofit, which I just think is so cool. Um, really? I didn't know that. The In 1926, the Association for the Study of Negro Life wanted a week in February for black history. And it ended up becoming an entire month decades later. Uh, but it was really that association that said, let's, let's actually designate this. I thought that's cool. And is there a reason that it was February? Um, because of president Lincoln's birthday and Frederick Douglass's birthday, mm. February mm-hmm. 12th and 14. So originally the week of black history week was over their two birthdays. And now, it's the entire month. Interesting. I did not know that. Fun fact Monday. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, again, kind of to contextualize this, um, I thought it was an interesting topic because, first off, we know that 
for far too long, fundraisers just like don't really spend time or energy energy figuring out how black philanthropy might be different and therefore how fundraising might need to be different. Um, and I think part of it is because, I mean, we know like there's a, there's a very real wealth gap in America, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that first off there isn't wealth within the black community, but also that there aren't just like normal income people, <laughs> right? Average income folks who we should also be fundraising with. Um, and what I thought was really interesting as I was doing some research was just like the long standing values around giving that the black community have that we actually don't have in most white communities. Yeah. Um, well, and now you're seeing more and more in that. I don't know if you have, but I'm sure just given, um, well, the fact that it's Black History Month and given the fact that um, this year has really highlighted racial inequities and um, racial justice. I am now starting to see all those different training sites that I belong to now offering how to um, diversify your donor base. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Which I had never seen before. I know. Me neither. Like some of the reports I pulled for today's discussion are from like 2010, 2015. And I was like, okay, so we have this data about black philanthropy. Why is it just now that we're actually translating it into fundraising strategy? Yeah. Like, what's the disconnect, folks? Absolutely. Um, okay, so again, just a little little history lesson within all of this. I'm loving it. Um, so the earliest black philanthropy in America was with enslaved folks. Um, and again, lots of great data on that. Um, but this one, I really appreciate it. So... 1847, we've got the Irish potato famine happening. Um, And those of you who don't know much about that, uh, really interesting. I highly recommend doing some research because you've got the the island of Ireland that is just being ravaged by this famine that goes multiple years. And the British Empire was basically like, yeah, we've been occupying you for like centuries, but fuck you. We're not going to help. Too bad, so sad. Yeah. And so then all these other groups were trying to step in, including enslaved people in America. Wow, really? So there's this great article that I found. um, And don't worry, everything I cite today, folks, you'll find in the show notes. If you want to read some more, you can. Uh, But this one specific church collected funds from their congregation of almost entirely enslaved peoples and sent it over to Ireland to help with the potato famine. Wow. Yeah. How inspiring is that? This is a side note, fun fact, but um, we also had um, indigenous peoples doing the same thing. Um, I think it was specifically the Choctaw Nation did that, um, which then came back a couple years ago when there were, um, I mean, just a lot of stuff going on with native communities and uh, the U.S. government continuing to fuck up their land. The Irish people came back and donated to them. Wow. I know. Anyway. I I think more than anything, like even in oppression, <laughs> even literally making no money, yeah, it, black Americans were giving to to those in need. And so, of course, we continue to see that. It, it's just like such a community value mm-hmm. of giving and especially giving when 
you you don't have much. I mean, we see, and we've got lots of data too, showing that Black Americans give at a higher uh, a higher ratio of their income than any any other racial group in the U.S. Um, some studies even indicate up to like twenty five percent more than any other wow. racial group. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and that's that's across socioeconomic status. Like that means that even poor families, even families living in poverty, are still giving. Wow. And so in your research, did you come across, I mean, obviously you have that um, example of the Irish potato famine, but what about kind of happening now? And I don't, if I'm jumping Mm -hmm. ahead, tell me, but I'm just curious about uh, what areas that are being focused for giving, like funding focuses. Great question. So I've got um, a study, again, find it in the show notes. Um, where they they do this great comparison of where different racial groups or ethnic groups give. And where we see black giving um, differ, like outpace any other racial group, is in youth development um, and health charities. Now, we know faith giving actually is very predictive of everything else, and their, their giving to their faith communities is, is incredibly high. It doesn't quite outpace um, white giving to faith communities. Uh, we can talk about mega churches and what that kind of philanthropy looks <laughs> up and why sure. it's so fucked up later. But um, I-, I think that, again, like such an indicator of community health, youth development, and actual health care services, it- it's so in alignment with with those kind of community-centered values. Why? I'm just so fascinated. Like, why don't we spend more time learning about this? I mean, we're so concentrated on learning about the difference in giving within generations. Right. Yeah. We talk so much about like, okay, how do you court the millennial donor? How do you ensure you've got, why aren't we talking about this? This is fascinating. I'm loving it. Great. Because I got more for you. Um, since I happen to mention <laughs> mega churches, I just can't <laughs> help but ignore this story that came out last week. So uh, the polar vortex is like hitting all kinds Everybody. of areas that aren't used to it, like Texas and Oklahoma. So I think this was out of Tulsa. I'll find out again. I'll put it in the show notes once I find it. But there was some mega church. They had a 15,000 person indoor concert in November, maskless. Mm. Uh, they also received $2 million in PPP funding and were refusing to open this weekend for unhoused people to have winter shelter. No. Yes. The hypocrisy. And they were they were citing COVID as the reason why it wasn't. No. Safe. Yes. We can have 15,000 people all in the same place without masks and not worry about COVID, but put some cots out and now we've got a problem. Yeah. And there was one church in particular that was cited, but there were a number of mega churches in the area that had similar stories. Funny enough, the AME church down the street, the black church, was opening up and putting cots out Aww. and ensuring that unhoused people were safe. No. That's shameful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it does tie in. Like, we've got, again, such a great history of black faith communities doing social justice work. Yeah. And I feel like so many of our grassroots movements actually came out of those church communities. Absolutely. Whereas we see, like, white churches, 
even the ones that do more social justice work, that is a much newer phenomenon. It was so much about this is our faith community. We are focused on our religion. And maybe we'll go do some colonialism and some mission work. I was going to say some missionary. I was just going to say it's most like missionary work. Yeah. Uh, Historically that we hear about. Just religious colonialism. Exactly. So, again, like – there there's so many indicators of where we are today that we should have been picking up as fundraisers as as people who are just interested in philanthropy that we haven't been glad we're talking about it now but we could have been doing a lot more um this is a slightly outdated study because my guess is it has ballooned significantly since then but in 2012 black philanthropists in America gave 11 billion dollars to nonprofits wow right so, yeah, we can talk about, like, the differential interests. At the end of the day, back, black philanthropy is a force. Yeah. That we're not talking about. Or not talking about enough, I should say. Yeah. Um, there are, uh, billion. Again, you said billion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Be like Bob. <laughs> <laughs> As I was doing this research, it was so interesting seeing, like, I mean, obviously – Black philanthropy is, like, not excluded from the rest of American discourse on philanthropy in some of the same ways. Like, so we talk about Bezos uh, and Gates and all of those. Well, they talk about Oprah and LeBron James. And then uh, this Morehouse, um, Robert Smith, who wiped out all the debt at Morehouse a few years ago. Yeah. And, like, what a big deal that was. Yeah. But it's a really interesting thing. And... Like, okay, so let, let's zoom out a bit. One of Nia's big crit- critiques of philanthropy is how much goes to fucking universities and yeah. sits in endowments and doesn't actually help get folks in and through college who really should be and who need it and yada, yada. Similarly, HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, haven't had that that kind of shift in philanthropy they're not sitting on the 500 million dollar endowments and so it's a really interesting thing too as we look at um just just culture around education and really the way that hbcus have been looked down upon for far too long well if we want to shift that does that mean we have to shift more philanthropy to them i i get really like scared oh. about that at the same time. But then you've got something like Robert Smith wiping out the student debt and we know what student debt does to communities and how it impairs economic growth and yada yada yada. I mean we could we could pull in Elizabeth Warren and have a whole conversation <laughs> about that. But it it's a really interesting thing where like black philanthropy doesn't have a significant tie into education like white philanthropy does. Yeah, but that's my question. Do they not t- do they typically not have those types of endowments because they don't have donors giving to those types of um, campaigns? Or are they choosing not to have those campaigns because they would rather direct donor funds somewhere else that has a greater impact? I think that's a great question, and I don't know the answer. Okay. To be continued. Something to look at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, what else do I got for you? I know I got some more data. So much fun data. I know. Um, I love your data. Okay. So talking specifically about fundraising. 
And I, I want to be clear, like we're not saying listen to this podcast and start targeting black donors because that is not the way to do this. <laughs> right. right. Like more than anything, it's about how fundraisers haven't been thinking about black philanthropy and need to. But there's so much that like within your organization needs to shift and Again, talking about your organization's values and how you mm-hmm. really put equity at the center. Uh, but I thought this was interesting. Um, so this is a direct quote from um, the diversity and giving study that I'll, I'll um, link to. And it says, are African-American and Hispanic donors less likely to give via core direct response channels because they've been left out of the fundraising conversation or because they truly prefer giving through other channels? We don't know enough to answer that question just yet. How do we not know enough to answer that question just yet? <laughs> that seems like a really, asked. yeah, I mean, it seems like a really fundamental thing. So, I mean, basically it means, all right, so the core direct response channels, we're sending our mailers, we're sending our emails, we've got our social media asks. Is it because we haven't included black philanthropists at the table for that? Or do they just really prefer these other ways? Like we know uh, black giving circles, big thing, Um, that kind of like collective impact that you can get through that. Um, Giving through a church that then gives on to other nonprofits. Like, is it that truly the preference or have we just not asked properly? Right. Well, I'm curious too, just given the political landscape over the last couple of Mm -hmm. years and what a legendary election we had and that so much of it um, is, you know, thanks to the black vote and who really stepped up and and came forward for the Democrats, at least, you say that. And I'm just curious from um, political fundraising. Did you read anything about that? I haven't. I'm going to be really curious to see the data we get out of 2020 because I think you're spot on there. Not only did we see grassroots organizations just get bolstered in really significant ways because of the the social justice conversation, the racial justice conversation. But then, yeah, you had this mass push for voter turnout. And I mean, the Stacey Abrams of the world doing the Lord's work. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> making shit happen. Yeah. And I'm quite sure that we we saw some shifts in philanthropy. And my guess is actually both black and white philanthropy. Mm-hmm. But I, I can't say for certain. I cannot wait till we get that data so that we really know how those things shifted. Um, because it, it 2020 was a year like no, no other. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like what I'm hearing you say, too, is – kind of this community aspect of it and you know whether it's giving through one central organization be it a church or a club or a group that then is disseminating their funds within the community but it really is kind of a um like a coming together for like the greater good Mm -hmm. and um and i was wondering about two when we talk about the differences in like Republican versus Democrat funding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how we've talked about this on the podcast before about, um, and I think it came up with VU around the the values of um, Republican giving that they give sustained amounts for long periods of time. Yep. And if there was some similarity there. 
Yeah, that'd be a really interesting thing to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have that consistent loyal funding mm-hmm. over long periods of time that really affect greater change. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, that'd be interesting. I know. Maybe by August, which is Black Philanthropy Month. I don't know if you know that existed. I did not. I didn't. Maybe by then we'll actually have some of that data and talk about it. Oh, we can circle back around. That would be great. Yeah. Um, I want to read one last quote just on this piece about like fundraising methods. Um, And this is from that same study, Diversity and Giving. The first step in solving a problem is recognizing that the problem exists. We have built a one-size-fits-all direct response fundraising machine. We mailed to the households that look most like the household responded in the, in the past. We built complex look-alike models, allowing us to better fish the same fishing holes for the same donors. Yeah. So basically, we've I mean, created this so self-fulfilling thing that, yeah, we, we've looked for this one type of donor – and so we're good at getting that one type of donor engaged. We haven't thought about what the other fish. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, the point that you're raising here is, again, to the effect that, you know, we look at all different quote unquote types of donors, be it age groups or um, political affiliation or whatever, but we're missing um, a whole subset of donors in these different ethnic groups that were not to your point about is it because this way or that way well maybe it's because they're not even at the table you know Mm -hmm. so are we even talking to them to figure out um you know what are some ways for engagement right that we're we're not we're overlooking completely exactly well and i you know we we focused a lot today on like formalized fundraising but if we look at the, the organizations that are truly grassroots, they might not even have 501c3s, right? Like they might be just that grassroots, that kind of collective energy in a community. And at least based on what I read, it would seem that black philanthropy would also be going to those sources, but we don't have any data to back that up. I, mm-hmm. I, I have... You know, Giving USA doesn't get that kind of informal philanthropy necessarily captured in their data. So we, we don't know about what that looks like. But my guess is it's probably pretty significant. Um, and especially because we know that so many Black-led organizations end up staying very small. A lot of yeah. reasons for that. A lot of issues with equity and foundation funding and scaling and blah, 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 blah. But if we have this issue with these organizations saying small, then even if philanthropy is being shifted there, it might not ever get big enough that it hits the radar for these kind of data sets. Wow. We learned something new. <laughs> I hope they do start paying more attention to that kind of data. And like you said, maybe this will be the year that, I don't mm-hmm. know, if somebody puts more time and effort towards that because, you know, it's going to benefit everybody, and um, I don't know. Like you said, maybe we'll know more come August when we can have some data from 2020. Ooh, I like that. Um, I do want to give a couple of additional sources of places people can go if they want to learn more um, because this is about black history and learning. 
So there is a new show, newish, I think in the last few months, on Netflix called Self Made. It's about Madam mm. C.J. Walker. Yeah. Um, it, the show doesn't really focus much on her philanthropy because that like comes chronologically after the show ends. But I mean, just like such a force. And her philanthropy is actually really fascinating in the ways that she directed it um, post that. So I'll include in the show notes an article about her philanthropy. So basically where the show ends, what happens from there. Um, also have to plug another podcast um, because I'm on it. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, again, I'll drop this in the show notes. The show is called What's Up With Karen? And it's a discussion primarily with white women about Karen's. You know, mm-hmm. the the people who called the cops um, on black men birding. Um, but my episode is really about Karens in nonprofits and mm-hmm. the ways that we aren't progressing necessarily in our efforts to become more diverse and the things that hold us back. So if you want to learn a little bit more about that, um, uh, I'll link to it. Um, and Come please- on, it's Nia. Of course they want to listen to it. <laughs> Well, I, I feel like I should give the caveat that uh, it's a pretty vulnerable thing. Yeah. It's uh, – I'm, like, not an expert in this stuff. And it's really important that it that it holds the right spaces. And I don't think I always get that balance right. Um, but you can hear me fumble through the conversation at the link <laughs> in the show notes. <laughs> All right. And then are we still collecting stories? Yes. Okay. So this gets released Monday. That means you have until Sunday, February 28. Get us some stories about your fundraising, fails, successes, et cetera, so we can do a listener episode in March. Please, please, please. It really doesn't take that long. Come on. You know every time you listen to one of our episodes and we ask for it, you're like, oh, remember that one story? I should send that to them. And then you get to work or you get busy with something and you forget about it so this is your moment take a pen write it on your hand remind yourself because that's what i do remind yourself to send your story to us because we want to hear it where do they send it they can email us nonprofitreframe at gmail.com you can direct message us either on instagram or facebook at nonprofit reframe And as always, this is the time. It's always going to be the time, but it's really still the time in 2021 to step up, support your local nonprofits. Please give and give generously. Thanks, folks. We would like to thank our sponsors. Mission Launch is a Colorado-based nonprofit consulting firm focusing on fundraising and board governance. You can learn more at missionlaunchco.com. And Jake Walker Music, who provides our theme music. You can find him at jakewalkermusic.org. Thank you so much.